Rwanda and our neighbors have done things to each other many times over the last 50 years that we need to reconcile in order to really have a sustainable peace. And that really began in our country. It is the week of January 31st, and welcome to episode 116 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, your host. Anais Kanimba is the daughter of Paul Recessa Bagina, the manager of a hotel in Rwanda, where he protected hundreds of Rwandans, both Hutu and Tutsi, from the genocide that engulfed that country in 1994. Today, Paul Recessa Bagina is in prison in Rwanda having been kidnapped and put on trial under conditions that are far from fair and just. Today's episode will feature a deep dive on the life of Paul Rusesa Bagina and on his daughter Anais's campaign for his freedom. Anais, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you, Liz. Yeah, we're thrilled you're here. Um, let's let's start off, if, if you're okay, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Where are you working now? Yeah, so I was born in Rwanda in 1992, and I've had the privilege to to live on the African continent, in Europe, and in America. I spent my studies, I would say that I studied my later education was in the United States. I attended a boarding school in New England where I was learning English through high school, and then I was very fortunate to study at Georgetown University my undergrad where I studied biology of global health. And I've been since working in the uh, international development field as a global health expert. Um, I was working at a company called Palladium here in Washington, D.C. And I've loved Washington, D.C. so much. And it's been a great place to kind of learn in, uh, about international development, about so many different cultures. Um, but unfortunately, I had to stop my job uh, in uh, last year when my father was kidnapped. And uh, I've really dedicated my time since to to secure his release. And uh, before we get into the, the details of your dad's case, tell us about your dad. What's he like? What does he mean to you? Yes, my dad, my dad is my hero. And you'll I'll tell a little bit more about why he's such a, an important person in my life. Um, you know, like I said, I was born in Rwanda in 1992, uh, amidst the civil war. Uh, the civil war led into a genocide in 1994. And I lost my parents in the genocide. Uh, I'm technically Tutsi in Rwanda, though we don't have uh, ethnicities anymore. But that meant that during the genocide, my parents were killed. Uh, both my mom and my dad were killed. And my father, Paul Sabagina, with my aunt, uh, Tassiana, took me in in their home. They raised me. They, they took care of me as their own children. They've provided me for any, everything I wanted, I've ever hoped. They've given me love. And for this, my father is my hero. Uh, and he's really the reason why I'm here today. And um, and so my father, you know, is a person with a lot of kindness and generosity. And the fact he's raised, raised me, uh, it, I think, shows the kind of man who he is. Anais, uh, that's that's an amazing part of your dad's story. It's an amazing part of your story. It's also an amazing part of your dad's story. And I want to and I want to ask you about what he did in 1994. But first, I just want to explain for our listeners, for those who are, who are not as familiar as uh, maybe the rest of us, that in 1994, Rwanda was engulfed by a genocide that killed somewhere between 800,000 and a million people in just three months. Uh, it, was, it was a horrific, terrible event. There's, there's a a lot of history involved and a lot of um, a lot of guilt that is shared by a lot of people. 
but also some amazing stories that came out from that time. And, and your dad, in a lot of ways, was the best story that came out of that genocide. Can, can you talk about that story about what he did in Rwanda during those three months in 1994? Um, during those really uh, horrible days, you know, the darkest days of, of Rwanda, I would say, um, my dad, you know, he was a, a hotel manager. Uh, in Kigali. He was a hotel manager of a pretty big hotel where a lot of businessmen and businesswomen would go there. And so when the, and a lot of Europeans will also stay at a hotel. And when the the war broke up, the genocide part broke up, um, he decided to, you know, to, to do the right thing. He decided to use his hotel as a place for refuge. He didn't want to uh, stand for the injustice that he saw there. And he saw this opportunity to see uh, with the hotel to save people and to bring people in and uh, offer refuge. And so over a hundred days, he had, uh, he had over a thousand people in the hotel who all were saved. Not, nobody was killed. Uh, everybody was, uh, went to the refugee camps after with his support. Every single night and every single day, he would call everywhere around the world to seek support because the world had closed their eyes on our country. And so my father, I think, was a brave man in a time where a lot of people were not brave and a lot of time where a lot of people were scared and of the future. But for him, you know, he loved the country of Rwanda. He loved his, the, his neighbors and his family. And he saw that any kind of ordinary person should be doing what the right thing and anything in their power and their means. And so what his power was is to open the door to his hotel. Um, and so that happened right at the beginning of the genocide when many of the international folks had to leave and were evacuated and the hotel was empty. Uh, and ever since then, you know, he's always reminds us that, you know, whenever adversity happens and whenever something wrong happens is don't hide away, affronted and, you know, stand up, do the right thing. And that's always, always try to do it. And it's a pretty big shoes to fill. Uh, it- I've I've been to Rwanda on ice. I've been to that hotel. I've stayed in that hotel. Uh, it's it's incredible. Even being there, you can't imagine the things that people went through during that time. And and Rwanda itself is a beautiful country, uh, incredible countryside. These amazing terraced farms uh, that are uh, incredibly productive. Uh, it's it's just. For for a visitor, at least for, for me as a visitor, it's it's impossible to imagine uh, the things that that went on during the genocide. And um, I don't know, I don't really have a question here except to say to you, you know, it's it's just be it's terrific to be able to talk to you, who are such who is such an important part of your dad's story when he was really like the best thing that happened during the darkest time. Like his example and his the things that he was willing to do at risk to his own life, I think were inspir- beyond just what he did for the people in the hotel, were inspirational for people around the world uh, who, who saw what happened in Rwanda, were horrified, of course, and, want, and were looking for what is, what is the good part of humanity. And there was your dad who had, who had done this thing at, at, uh, at really just the, the bravest thing you could possibly do, stand in the way of darkness and evil and try to protect innocent people. So uh, I guess I don't have a question there except to say uh, thank you for telling that story. No, of course. And then, you know, the story of my father, we were very fortunate that the, it was told in a, in a Hollywood movie, Hotel Rwanda, and it has 
we're sort we're lucky to share a story to the world, the story of Rwanda. But something my father has always uh, made sure that you, people know is that um, there were a lot of other people too in Rwanda who tried to do what they could, but unfortunately their voice was never heard and their actions were never shared with the world. And I think in my in this last year that I've um, you know, lived some of the worst things for me in my life, you know, after the genocide, I would say with all the difficulties um, and all the hardships and all the challenges that I've seen, really the sadness that I've seen missing my father the last year, I've also seen so much humanity. And often people ask me, you know, why aren't you so sad? Why aren't you more upset about the situation that your father is in? And the reason why I'm not so, so angry is because I, I am, but it's because the, the world has stood up. So, many, so much humanity has, shown, has come to us. Um, and I believe that in Rwanda too, when my father decided to do that, he was hoping that he will not be the only one standing up against evil, standing up against injustice. And so the story of Hotel Rwanda is a story that tells our, our family's story, my father's story, but know that there are many Rwandans who also fought against uh, these um, killers. Uh, but unfortunately, the story was never told. And my father has made his life works to tell the story of other people to the, the voiceless. Let me ask you about the Presidential Medal of Freedom. President George W. Bush gave your dad the highest civilian honor this country can give. Tell us, tell us what that was like for you and what you think it was like for your dad. It was a, a very, very, very big honor for my dad. You know, he couldn't believe that uh, the United States president, you know, would recognize him for such, uh, for what he felt was an ordinary thing to do. Uh, he, my father never saw himself as a hero. And so being recognized for his bravery during the genocide by the president of the United States, for a man who was born in the village, in a deep village of Rwanda, it was a big thing for him. It was an incredible honor. And it was also important, too, because President Bush is a president who's shown a lot of care for Africa and is a person who knows a lot about Africa compared to the other presidents in the past. And so being uh, George Bush, the one who recognized him, also made uh, an additional impact uh, for him, but also for our family. Anais, I want to I want to ask you about the stuff your dad has done since the genocide. And I know it's it's a long story. He's been very active. Uh, he's he's said a lot. He's done a lot. But but encapsulize for us for our listeners what he's done in the cause of human rights in Rwanda since the genocide. The, his last work is to use his platform to. To, to speak about the, the voiceless of Rwanda. And the main issue in Rwanda in the last 20 years has been this lack of democracy, lack of freedom of speech, but also the, uh, the killings that have happened around our country, specifically in the Congo. And so there's a lot of deep pain and healing that needs to be done in Rwanda. And it's for that that my dad decided to really engage in truth and reconciliation in the region. Uh, in the Great Lakes of Africa, because uh, the Rwanda and our neighbors have done things to each other uh, many times over the last 50 years that we need to reconcile in order to really have a sustainable peace. And that really began in our country. Um, and so that's really my father, his last work. It was really to bring this truth and reconciliation, to highlight the injustices happening in Rwanda, because it's such a beautiful country, like you mentioned, and we'd love to live in, in there with people happy and, and better. 
Anais, if I can, if I can just offer like my view of what's going on, it seems to me your dad has continued his brave stand since the genocide, been willing to say things uh, about the situation in Rwanda that are that are not appreciated by the powers that be. He's been very courageous about that. And he's talked about human rights. He's talked about democracy, about, about the need to reconcile these, these past wrongs and move past them into, into an era when everyone uh, is, is able to get along better. Uh, it's really the most important message there can be in our secular world, right? He is, he is an advocate for peace and human rights. And, and I think it's, and I will just point out, because I don't want you to have to do it, that there have been people in the government who've been very critical of him for, for taking this brave stand because they see that as a, as a threat to them. And, uh, and it's kind of led to this situation where he is now. So I want to ask you to, to kind of, let's go to the not as happy side of your dad's story and tell us how he got to be in prison in Rwanda, what happened what was what was the mode by which he's he finds himself in this situation? Well, like you just said, really, like his um he the he's the way he was speaking out really made him recognized in the high levels of the Rwandan government. And because in Rwanda, it's a country where you cannot criticize what's happening, you cannot criticize the country because Rwanda is just so beautiful, nothing bad happens over there. And so really anybody who dares to criticize uh, the current regime. Uh, there's some consequences. In the past, uh, they used to call my father a genocidaire. And a genocidaire, for those who don't know, are the people who committed the genocide in 1994. They've accused him of many, many, many things. Um, and so they, this regime is a regime that, that represses critics. And they've really engaged in this practice of transnational repression over the last uh, 20 years or so. And this culminated with my father being kidnapped. And so he was going on a trip to Burundi where he was invited by a pastor, a Burundian pastor, who we found out later was a spy of the Rwandan government. And he was tricked to leave San Antonio, Texas, where he was uh, last in September 2020, uh, August 2020, and to fly to Burundi to speak what he usually does really about truth and reconciliation uh, to some church congregation and others in, in Burundi. And um, to his surprise, the flight that was going to Burundi landed in Kigali. Anais, and- can, I, can I just stop you there for one second? And I don't mean to interrupt mm-hmm. this incredible story, but mm-hmm. for our listeners who don't know, Burundi is a neighboring country to Rwanda. It shares in many ways some similar characteristics as Rwanda. It is, it is almost a mirror image in, in some ways uh, to what, what happened in Rwanda. So your dad going to Burundi to talk about what was happening in Rwanda was a was a logical thing for him to be doing to bring his message of peace and reconciliation. Yes, exactly. Because in Rwanda, like you said, in Burundi, you know, Burundi and Rwanda, uh, back in the days under colonial power, used to be one country. So in Burundi, you have Tutsis and Hutus. So what happened in Burundi usually trickles over in Rwanda and vice versa. So we've shared a lot of the similar history with that country. And that's why truth and reconciliation are very important uh, topics and the discussions for him to, to, to do it over there. Um, and so, so when he traveled to Burundi, thinking that he was going on this, uh, to Burundi, his flight was derailed and went to Kigali. And upon arrival, he was uh, taken into this place where he was tortured for three days. He was incommunicado. We tried to reach, uh, reach him uh, for those three, four days he was gone. We couldn't find out. We couldn't find him. 
until the morning of August 31st, I woke up to pictures of my father handcuffed at the Rwanda Investigation Bureau in Kigali uh, with pictures of him. And I, we were very, very confused. We did not know what happened, how he would have arrived in Kigali because it's a country where he would never dare to go back given that the regime had said that they wanted to kill him. President Kagame has mentioned he wanted to kill him several times in the past. Um, and so it was a very, very big shock. And once he arrived in Kigali, we found out that he was in Kigali, the nightmare uh, continued. The nightmare led to a sham trial. They accused him of terrorism. Uh, and then they forced him to go to court without lawyers. They forced him to uh, go to court without having to read, read his case files. They denied him uh, confidential communications with his lawyers and within the US embassy that went to see him. They denied him to read his case files. And then also they didn't give any resource to prepare his defense. So they essentially kidnapped him to throw him in jail for life. And they used the justice and legal means as a disguise to this political motivation against him. Um, and so, you know, we've been working very hard over the last year and a half to try to secure his release. Um, but my father's uh, has definitely, you know, he's, 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 been, um, he's been in the worst conditions because the prison system in Rwanda are very bad. Uh, and all of this really is because he dared to, to criticize the regime. And that's what happens when one does that to President Kagame. Uh, tell us more about uh, how your dad himself is doing. What's his health? What's his attitude? How, are you able to communicate with him? And if so, how? So with the support of the U.S. Uh, government, we've been very blessed to talk to him every Friday. Uh, we get to hear his voice and that's, we, that's what's keeping us going. We're, we're going by the week these days for the last year and a half. It's by the week when we hear his voice, we feel so much better. But we know that when we speak to him, uh, he cannot speak freely. And we know that he's not telling us everything. And the most scary part about that is his health for us, uh, because we know that he cannot tell us when things are wrong. Uh, he's a cancer survivor, he, um, and he also has hypertension. So uh, during this pandemic where uh, health issues are even heightened and, and the fact that COVID is here, we are just very, very scared in the treatment that he's received for somebody who's 67 years old um, has been really difficult for us to, to, to swallow, I'd say. And so we're very, very scared for his well-being. But mentally, you know, he is there. He is really uh, staying strong. He reminds us he loves, loves us all the time, but he keeps his conscience going. And his conscience, uh, that's what he always tells us, my conscience is what keeps me going. And his conscience is to do the right thing. And he knows that he didn't do anything wrong. He knows he was, he's being accused and his accusation was politically motivated. Uh, what he knows is to continue to say the truth. And the truth is what we also trying to do. And the truth is his innocence. Um, and so we, you know, we, we are, we're so lucky to, to get to speak with him, but it's a difficult, difficult, um, difficult period for our family and for him mostly. He's actually been in solitary confinement for, uh, he was in solitary confinement for almost eight months. And then after that, he was in isolation and he's been in isolation since. He cannot speak to anyone in jail. Uh, he can only speak with us on Fridays. So, so sometimes when we speak with him, we can hear his voice is not uh, as the voice of somebody who hasn't spoke to others. So it's tough out there, but uh, he he's staying strong. He's our father. 
and he's doing his best to to stay strong and to keep there to stay strong there. Amazing. Uh, tell us, tell us what you and the rest of the family are doing now to try and win his release from this political and, and unjust confinement. So we're trying to raise as much support as possible because we know that we'll never be able to get him out of there by ourselves. We need the support of the U.S. government, of NGOs, and everyone to 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 rise up. And so the main thing was to begin with work in Congress. And right now, actually, uh, Congressman Castro is going to introduce a resolution uh, along Congresswoman, Congresswoman Kim uh, in favor for his support. And so we've seen and we've also seen uh, additional support from through congressional letters. We're very fortunate that this is a bipartisan issue that Congress cares about. However, you know, my father is still in Kigali. And so we need to put more pressure on, on Kigali to get that done. And so we're also raising support from NGOs, specifically the Lantos Foundation has been a big support for us. And they've helped us to actually uh, apply for Magnitsky sanctions around, against the people who uh, kidnapped my father. Uh, there's this minister of justice who actually went on record on TV uh, saying how the Rwandan government paid for the plane to kidnap my father, admitting to uh, to denying my father's rights for basic rights, legal rights, and admitting to reading my father's communication with his lawyers. And all those are criminal activities conducted by a minister of justice. And so this is why tools like the Magnitsky sanctions exist. And so we're very blessed that organizations like the Lantos Foundation, Redress, and others have also engaged in this. And we saw in the United Kingdom that the British Parliament um, actually asked uh, Boris Johnson to consider Magnitsky sanctions on this uh, ambassador, on this minister who is going to become the ambassador of Rwanda to, to the United Kingdom. We've also been really support, uh, lucky to have the support of, uh, of, of pe general people, including people from Hollywood uh, and, and uh, from different organizations. And so we're hoping that there's gonna be more movement and momentum behind this case in, in the next couple of months. Uh, I won't talk too much about it because we have some exciting stuff happening, but I'd love to let you know your, your audience that uh, people from all walks of life are really are trying to help us. Um, and lastly, you know, we've been very, very fortunate that this trial was, been, was monitored by the American Bar Association and the Clooney Foundation for Justice through a trial watch program. And so the trial watch team is going to uh, provide a report about what happened in the last, in the last year to my father uh, that will help us really share the story of, of his story in Kigali, the injustices, but also really uh, for, uh, for the world to understand kind of the challenges behind this and to really stand up against uh, this injustice. And so um, we need more support. I will never stop asking for support because uh, we cannot do this by ourselves, but we are very, very fortunate thus far in what we've achieved and we're continuing to working hard to, to achieve more because we miss my father so much. And then whatever we'll do, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to bring him back home. So Don Cheadle played your dad in the movie, which, uh, and I believe he was nominated for an Academy Award for that, for that mm -hmm. performance. You've got George Clooney involved. You really need the whole Ocean's Eleven gang to come in and rescue your dad. Like if anyone can break him out of prison, I think it would be those guys. All right. I'm joking a little bit. This is an incredibly serious matter. Uh, and I, I really I, I can't tell you uh, how moving it is that you're that you came on here and shared the story. And so and 
uh, really laid it out so well. Um, this, this really, this, this crime that has happened against your father that I think is something that should be really offensive to all this. Let me, let me just ask you one more question before we close. Uh, how is the Biden administration handling what's going on with your father? You know, the Biden administration, uh, I'm going to take a step back a little bit about my father, but really about wrongful detention and hostage cases. Uh, the Biden administration has been very slow in bringing back Americans home. Um, and, uh, you know, and many families of wrongful detainees are quite frustrated about the Biden administration so far. But, you know, we are very grateful for the support that we've received so far with the State Department because uh, a lot of people are working hard on the case, but it's just much slower than it should be. And we know the United States has the means and the resources to help our loved ones and to bring them back home. And so in over the last year, I've got to meet many other families. Some of them are in, have their loved ones in, uh, in, in Russia. Others have their loved ones in Venezuela or in Iran. In places that are very difficult to work, places that are adversary to, to the administration today and to the country. But Rwanda is a country where, that the Biden administration has worked with. And so it's a, it's a place that is a partner with the Biden administration. And so we would love to actually encourage the Biden administration to leverage the relationship with the Rwandan government today to save my father. To also show that, you know, if they can leverage the relationship they have with a partner to bring back a wrongful detainee like my father home. They can give the hope for other families who are in Russia, in Iran, or in Venezuela, or in China, that their loved ones can also come home too. And so I really am thankful for the efforts that they've done so far, but I'm asking them to do more and to leverage everything that they can to bring him back. Anais, this is uh, just an incredible story. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and talking about it. I also want to say we're we're happy to do whatever we can to help you in this campaign to free your father. I hope we can have you back to talk about a successful campaign to get your father out of prison. And I hope maybe even he would come on and talk about uh, what happened. Uh, but until that, until that time, we want to keep working with you. Thank you again for, for coming on and, and being willing to talk about this. Thank you so much, Les. And I hope that my father will be here with you and not me. Me too. Yeah. Me too. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national securities fault lines.